Good morning. I'm doing the Bible reading this morning, and we're starting at Hebrews 5, verse 11, going through to 6, verse 12. And in light of what Chris, Chris preached about last week, um, that Jesus is the high priest, we lead into this now. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance for acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment, and God permitting will do so. It is important for those who once who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away, to be brought back to repentance. To their, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives a blessing from God. A land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people continue to help and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. And we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And the second uh, Bible reading, a little bit more light-hearted, is Ecclesiastes 7 verse 5. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Yes. Excuse me for being a bit cheeky with the Bible reading. <clears throat> this text that we come to this morning is notoriously difficult for many people. And I suspect if you're looking for a conversation after lunch or over lunch, this text would be a great one. And uh, I'm sure you'll get it all resolved and have all your questions answered. Uh, 
in due course. Uh, well, welcome. It is great to be with you. My name is Jonathan. Uh, it's a privilege to serve this pastor, excuse me, this church as, as a senior pastor. Um, I uh, was very blessed to be able to get some time away last week, so thank you to Chris uh, and the whole team uh, for leading our services last week. Thank you to Krista as well, leading our family service. Uh, it was a joy uh, to be able to get away uh, first on my own. Uh, to spend some time with the Lord, and second, uh, with uh, my family uh, down in the Riverina. Uh, so I thought I would just share um, a bit of my, my prayers for this church uh, while, while I was away. My prayer was that the Lord would unite us as a fellowship, but not under a program nor through momentum, nor through man-made enthusiasm, but rather that he would unite us in love for Jesus and for one another. And that this in turn would lead to a uniting of the churches in our area. I ask the Lord to restore our confidence as a fellowship and to erode our fear I ask the Lord to please protect our witness so that we would exalt Jesus and not cause anyone to stumble. I ask the Lord to unfurl his righteousness before us and that we would be willing to stand with him. I ask the Lord to teach us mercy so that we would show it to our neighbors. And I ask the Lord to release us from our sins that he would restore Bly Park, South Windsor, Londonderry, Windsor, Richmond, Marsden Park, and many, many other places around, that the captives would be freed and that Jesus would shine on us. I invite you to join me in those prayers. The heart behind these prayers is that we would be united in our love and passion for Christ which is something that the writer to the Hebrews holds very dear. Uh, as we come to this text, which is difficult, um, I'm going to be borrowing off of Craig Coster's uh, arrangement of this section into three sort of subsections. And this arrangement is detailed around how the speaker is engaging or approaching the hearer. First, he's going to approach them with shame. Then he's going to approach them with a warning. And finally, he's going to approach them with a consolation or with confidence. But this text is difficult and it's hard to hear because the stakes are so high. And as I was reassuring the worship team before we came out here today, the stakes are high because we've been given and offered such a great salvation. And were it not so, the stakes and perhaps the teeth of this warning would not be what it is. But as Ecclesiastes says, it is better to heed the rebuke of a righteous person than to listen to the song of fools. In other words, it's better to hear something that you might not enjoy hearing, but it promotes righteousness in you, than to hear something that might sound pleasing to you, but in the end is just folly. 
has no substance to it. So I invite you to pray with me now as we open God's word together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask that your Holy Spirit would put Jesus before us at the center. Lord, would you encourage our hearts? May we be open to what you have to say. Lord, for those who are just starting their journey with you, we pray for comfort and for encouragement. We pray for growth. Lord, for those who have been walking with you and perhaps have become stagnant or stale, we ask that you would enliven them and enliven us. And Lord, for those of us who are trying to persevere in righteousness, would you sustain us with your grace? We thank you for the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This series is called Seeing Jesus, and that's kind of the focus of the theme of the book of Hebrews. And you can sort of look at this section, perhaps, as uh, kind of a maturity marker. 5, 11 to 6, 12, uh, he, he's saying we should be seeing Jesus among us. <laughs> In other words, uh, if we've been looking to Christ, if we've been accessing the throne of grace through the high priest, we ought to be seeing more of Jesus among us his image being reflected and incorporated into who we are. Uh, and so I've titled this message, Moving Towards Maturity, which comes from verse 1 of chapter 6. Uh, the big question today is, are we progressing or are we regressing? Are we moving forward spiritually or are we moving backward? Where is the spiritual inertia behind our faith? Are we growing and developing? Are we being conformed to the image of Christ? Or are we be becoming reverting, I should say, are we reverting more towards the image of the world? It's a tough question. If you're like me, many days you might feel a little less like Jesus, a little more like the world. But it's an important question. Because behind this is the idea that the Word of God is not ineffective, but it will shape us, it will train us, it will change us and transform us into righteousness. The simple, excuse me, the big idea, I should say here, the big idea this morning is that as we hear God's Word, we ought to be maturing to obedience. We ought to be being changed and transformed and brought forward into that. And so, you could say the simple truth is that lazy spirituality is immaturity and it's fatal. A lazy spirituality, a, a lazy hearing, a dull hearing, not only will it stop you from growing and maturing in Christ, but it'll, it, it could ultimately prove to be your undoing. It's not because the word's ineffective. It's not because God has somehow changed his character or he's trying to trick you or, or anything like that. No, it's because a lack of heeding and hearing the word might cause us to turn away. Uh, as we come to an overview of the text this morning, uh, I want to uh, just point out, you'll see sort of Coster's uh, illustration there, excuse me, his structure. 
shame verses five, chapter five, verse 11 to six, three. He's literally bringing shame to the people. He said, you should be embarrassed of this. Then comes the warning, the famous warning in verses four to eight of chapter six about the impossibility to renew to repentance. And then lastly, the statement of confidence. He, he sort of pivots. He says, look, this is all possible, but, but, but actually I, I have better things in mind for you. Our outline today, we're going to see that this passage establishes three expectations for faith that saves. To say, I have faith in Jesus, your faith should do these things. It should grow. A saving faith matures. A saving faith must persevere. It will persevere. It will make it to the end. And finally, a saving faith will inherit, inherit the promises of God. There will come the full recompense, the full reward, the, the pouring out of all that God has had in store for those who have trusted in his promises. But first we come to verses 5, 11, and, and, and here <laughs> the warning is, be ashamed if you've been listening but not maturing. Now, this is a bit controversial. It, it, no one likes to be ashamed. I don't know anyone who says, ooh, shame, sign me up for that. <laughs> I told our family service this morning, uh, one of the most painful experiences of my life in terms of emotionally and to my pride was when I got a phone call at 8 a.m. I picked up the phone from my bedroom. The phone was hanging on the wall. I was at college at university and it was my professor of political science research methods on the phone. But he didn't identify himself that way. I picked up the phone. He, I said, hello. He said, yes, good morning, Jonathan. I said, oh, hi, good morning. Who's this? Oh, this is your professor. I said, oh, oh, what? That's a bit odd. What, what can I do for you? The class and I were wondering when you'd like to arrive this morning. And the whole room erupts in laughter. This is a class of 50-plus kids. And I resented him for it. But you know what? I was not late. After that, I was not late. I was there every time. Shame can be a powerful motivator. Nobody likes being told you got something in your teeth or you got, you got something on your face or, or, or you don't quite measure up. But isn't it worse to just go through your whole day with like something hanging off your face? Right? You go, into, you, you go to like wash your face before bed. You look in the mirror like, oh my goodness, how long has this thing been on me or in me? And you think, Wow. Nobody told me. You feel worse, don't you? There is a point, to, there is a time and a place to be motivated shamefully. There's a place to come over to the star athlete who's giving half an effort and say, why is our slowest person beating you in the foot race? There's a time to go to the person who has been taught over and over and over and over and over again but yet refuses to apply their knowledge. That's a bit of what's going on here. They've been listening, but they're not maturing. Let's go to the word. Verse 11, we have much to say about this. What's this? This is the fact that Jesus is a new kind of high priest. He's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He's a king priest. Not only is a king priest, he's a king priest that's been appointed forever. He didn't go to the earthly temple. He's in the heavenly sanctuary. He's literally at the right hand of God. Where God is, Jesus is right now. And guess what? You and I can find grace and mercy there whenever we want, when we go in his name, because he's standing there. 
And the, the speaker, the writer, is so excited. He says, we got much more to tell you about all this. There's a, there's a life-giving reality that is behind this truth. He said, but I, but I can't. It's difficult. Literally, <laughs> the phrase is, the word has much more for us. The word has much more for us, but it is difficult to speak. The word of God has more to say. So a lot of translations say this, you know, he's, he's being poetic. We, we have much more to say. This is, a, this is a speaker saying, I could go on and on. But the text literally says, the word has more for us. The word has more for us, but it's difficult to say to you. Like, now, the reason is because you're no longer trying to understand. Literally because you're dull of hearing. You have a slowness of hearing. Brothers and sisters, the logos, the word of God, Jesus Christ, is not a mere idea to get our heads around. It's not something that's heard once, consumed, and understood. No, it's a truth that is comprehensive. It's integrative. It's transformative. It's ever shaping. It's ever sharpening us. It's ever shining. And whatever comes under its, its living and enlivening light will be changed. God's word to us in Christ goes on and on and on. But so many of us, and I've been in this camp, feel like Jesus had a one-hit wonder. And we're saying, Jesus, when are you going to drop the next album? Jesus, I heard the gospel. I heard you died, you rose. We go to heaven. Yay! What? When's the sequel coming out? What, when's the release? And we just sort of, okay, okay, okay. Now, his critique of them is going to be twofold because he's going to say, you should know this by now, but you don't. And he's also going to tell them you need to relearn it because you think you know it, but you don't really know it all that well. I saw a great movie a couple years ago. It's called Yesterday. Anybody seen that movie Yesterday? Have you seen that? Great movie, right? It's about, it's about a world where the Beatles never existed, but there's one guy, a musician, who knows all the Beatles songs. And so he takes their music and, and he embarks on sort of this career of fame. But there's this amazing scene at the beginning of the movie when he first finds out that no one knows who the Beatles are. And he gets into his piano at home and he has his parents come in. He's like, hey, listen to this. And he plays Hey Jude for them. Raise your hand if you know the song Hey Jude. All right, good. All right, good. He plays Hey Jude for them. And, and, and he looks at mom and dad and they're like, okay, what's so special about that? <laughs> you want a sandwich? And they sort of pat him on the back. That's really cute. And he's pulling his hair out and he's saying, do you realize what just happened? You were the first people in the world to hear the song, Hey Jude. But they weren't listening carefully. You see, the gospel is not something that you simply hear once. It's something we need to hear over and over and over again because the depth of its truth hits us from different angles and it shines light in different places. So as we are growing and maturing and living, so it is shaping us in different ways as we continue to hear it. You can never grow tired of hearing the gospel, but not just, not just hearing the simple truths repeated, 
but allowing them to shape and inform who you are. And so the, the idea here is that they should be farther along by now. And he says, I want to talk to you about what it means to have a high priest that you can go to and find mercy. And I want you to unpack that, that whole, I want to unpack that image for you, but you aren't ready to give it the attention it deserves. You tune out too quickly. Look, we've all had that loved one. We've said, hey, watch this movie. Hey, listen to this song. And we bring them in and we say, hey, sit down. And, and, and they're like, okay, go ahead, start it. You know? And, and you're halfway through the movie and they're on their phone. You know? Or you're halfway through the song and they're saying things like, oh, are we going to go to that place for dinner? And you're like, no, please stop. Just listen. <laughs> listen to what we're saying. That's what the author's saying here. In fact, he says, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need to hear it again and again and again. You should be teaching by now. The gospel is simple enough that a child can learn it and can share it. But it's deep enough that you can spend your lifetime exploring it, swimming around in it. And he looks at them and he says... You should know the basics. In fact, you should be able to teach the basics, but you don't even know that very well, so you gotta go back and get the basics again. So I gotta still bottle feed you. You need milk, not solid food. They should be embarrassed. Many of you should be teachers. The goal is not for this to be a place where we only have one or two paid voices who stand in this pulpit. We ought to be teaching. I would love for people to beat down my door and say, Jonathan, I am able to lead a small group. Can I lead a small group? Can I, can, 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 can I teach people? Please, I have these people I want to explain the gospel to. Many of you are richly educated. Many of you have understanding beyond me and beyond what I ever will have. Many of you have combined that knowledge with experience. Can I ask, are you sharing it? Are you teaching it? Now, don't give me the whole, well, I'm not a public person and da-da-da. Seriously? Are we really going to let our own pride and people's perception of us stop us from doing what God has enabled us to do? Are we going to really worry about that? Are we going to be that kind of church? I hope not. You need milk, he says, not solid food. You can't handle the meat. <clears throat> this maturity, furthermore, is marked by a capacity for moral reasoning. <clears throat> we should not be surprised at this. He says their immaturity or their inability... To, to understand this good word, this immaturity plays itself out in not being able to distinguish right from wrong. He says, I know you're immature because you don't know how to live. You, you can't tell me what's right and wrong. You don't have a knowledge of the word of righteousness. The gospel, even Jesus himself, he's not getting a proper hearing. And so they can't distinguish between what's right and wrong. And yet, brothers and sisters, how different are we? <laughs> 
How many times do we hand over our discernment to the least mature believer among us and ask them to read our moral compass? How often do we go to the very new Christian, the first one, and say, what do you think about this moral issue? And they don't really know any better. And so they give a very worldly answer and we say, oh, well, they said it. I guess I can do it. There is a connection between a dullness, a laziness, a slowness of hearing the word to an inability to tell right from wrong. Are we surprised to find ourselves living in a society that's forgetting how to differentiate between men and women? Are you surprised by that? Are we surprised that the ethic of our day and age seems to have been reduced to the lowest common denominator? Our ethic, our decision of what's right or wrong has been reduced down to simply what feels right for me. Not what is right, because we can't say something is right, but what feels right, and not just for God or for anything, but for me. What feels right for me is basically what we've reduced our ethic to. This very same week I heard a story about how children do not belong to their parents, while also hearing a story that said it's, that it's not society's job to care for children whose parents have unwisely or accidentally or impulsively been brought into the world. On the one hand, people saying, children don't belong to their parents. On the other hand, saying, it's not society's responsibility to look after these children. They were brought in. Out of one side of their mouth, they're saying the parents don't have a right to impose an ethic, a morality, a worldview, or even a gender upon their child. And on the other side of their mouth, our society is saying, not my problem. The bottom line is, according to our world and our ethic, I am only accountable and I'm only responsible for myself. I'm only accountable and I'm only responsible for myself. That's our morality, folks. That is the ethic of our day. Does that sound to you like something that's advanced or really developed or something that's evolved into something really great and clear? Sounds very caveman to me. I do what feels right for me. Are we surprised that our homes, our marriages, our workspaces are littered with fractured relationships? That, that these places have disintegrated into detached formalities that are driven not by a sincere love for others, but instead driven by mutual satisfaction, a sort of tit-for-tat codependency? I mean, seriously, look around. This is the fabric of our relationships. And is it any wonder why? Because whenever that relationship gets tension or is challenged or is strained or is stressed, what's the ethic that we fall back on? It didn't feel good for me. How can you resolve any conflict with that ethic? So the writer is talking to the Christians and he's saying to the Christians, you're immature and I know you're immature because you can't tell right from wrong. You don't have any sort of ethic, any sort of morality that is advanced, that is rooted in righteousness. Who is the church listening to and how well are we listening? Are we justifying our sin by saying that our newly converted brother or sister, a mere baby in Christ, is involved in the same wickedness? 
If it's okay for them to do it, it's okay for me to do it. Are we hesitant to hold one another accountable because we're not really sure whether it matters if we sin after becoming a Christian? Are we confused about what the gospel actually is? Feeling a bit unsure of how to square God's grace to us in Jesus with God's will for us to become like Jesus? Are some of us settled in this state of affairs, so confident in our own understanding and frankly satisfied in our own superiority that we don't bother teaching the word to our younger brothers and sisters because we prefer instead to rest and maybe secretly even relish in the maturity gap? Because in that maturity gap, it's easier to trust my superior knowledge than it is to trust my superior Savior for the righteousness that I desperately need. And are we surprised that so many of us are silent about the gospel when we really can't remember why we call it good news anyway? It's tough. Do you have a vision for what progressing in your faith looks like? Or, or is faith just a salvation ticket? Because the premise of the word and the premise of the exhortation is that faith is not a salvation ticket. Faith is a bond. Faith is an attachment. Faith is a grasping hold of Christ in the spiritual realm wholly leaning, wholly trusting, wholly resting upon him and being pulled by that anchor. We'll learn more of this next week. Being drawn by that anchor into the very presence of God himself. As we move forward, we see that those who, who can have solid food, they actually can distinguish good from evil. They Knowing the thoughts and ways of God, learning the scriptures, not because it's a magic book, but learning the scriptures because it's God's thoughts and God's ways, and we want to know him better. Moving on to 6.1, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Notice the passive there. We're being brought forward. We're being carried forward. You don't do it in your own strength. This isn't the writer saying, hey, hey, here's the bar. You better figure out how to get over it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't let go of the rope. Don't let go of the rope. You will be brought forward into maturity. If you cling to Christ in faith, he will shape you. He will transform you. He will take you. He will lead you. He will make you into his own image. Let's be brought towards maturity. Let's, let's be brought into the finish line. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from... Now, when he says laying again the foundation here, he's going to give six sort of headings, and, and it's, three, it's three pairs. The first one is repentance from dead works, repentance from dead works to faith in Christ. The second pair is baptisms and laying on of hands, which refers to church practice. And the third pair refers to resurrection and the eternal judgment to come. <laughs> He's saying, we don't want to lay a foundation again 
You don't build two foundations on top of each other. Christ is the foundation. He's the cornerstone. The house is constructed from him. Now, he's saying we will go towards maturity. I'm just watching the clock because we got a, we got a bit to go. If it's all right with you, I might forego uh, this section, which is very interesting, but I think the point has already been made. In this section, these are the basics of Christian teaching. When it refers to washings, it's probably talking about the difference between Christian baptism and, or baptism in the name of Jesus and, and what were the baptisms in the Jewish tradition. Laying on of hands can refer to either a commissioning, uh, a, a blessing, an act of healing, or as in some cases it was associated with baptism and the reception of the Holy Spirit. The point is these are the basics. These are things everyone should know, he says to the, he says to the church. Verse 3, and God permitting, we will do so. Again, it's more emphatic than that. He's saying, and we will. God will bring us there. God will bring us to this mature place. He's not simply talking about his argument or his, his speech. He's saying we will get there. I really like this quote from Luke Timothy Johnson. He said, obedience, as we have seen, is a form of responsive hearing. The listener's reluctance to learn more about such a Messiah, therefore, may have much to do with their perception that such learning leads them into the same path of suffering. The difficulty faced by the author is not simply mental laziness, but spiritual resistance. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying they, they, they begin to reckon, as you hear the gospel, you begin to reckon that faith in Christ looks like obedience, which looks like it's going to put you in the same path of suffering that Jesus was in, and they are resisting that. They don't want to suffer. And that's the tricky line he's trying to walk. So he tells them to be ashamed. Then he moves on, be warned. Be warned, a Christian experience is no substitute for faith. Be warned, a Christian experience is no substitute for faith. I just want to say, this passage freaked me out early in my walk. And I still hear the strength of its warning today. This is a strong text, okay? But don't dismiss. We're going to listen to what it has to say. It is a warning. You're going to notice here in the scriptures, he's going to switch from a uh, you language to third person language, which I think softens it a little bit. This has led some to say, well, it's a completely hypothetical situation. That could never happen. What's the point in giving a warning for something that could never happen? <laughs> but nevertheless, it is not, he's not speaking to them directly, as it will become clear in verse 9. He is speaking to them, however, 
about someone who I'm going to call an apostate, which means someone who has fallen away. And we're going to see here the warning is that a Christian experience is no substitute for faith. Again, Johnson says, he says, the struggle to find definitive answers to the puzzles provided by the lists in these verses uh, is to be sure a distraction. (laughs) He's saying your mind's going to want to try to put all this together. That's a distraction. The main point is perfectly straightforward. The enormity of apostasy is measured by the greatness of the experience of God it abandons. That's the point. To experience God and walk away from him is devastating. What does the text say? It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and of the powers of the coming age. Oops, swiping the wrong thing. And the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. I really appreciate the attempts the NIV has gone to to preserve the original sense of how this construction falls out. Literally, the first words are, for it is impossible. For means it connects with what came before. He's saying, grow up, be mature, keep progressing, don't revert, don't regress. For, notice the connection. There's the, the reason why they're not to regress is because of this. For, then he says, it is impossible. Impossible. That's the same word he's going to use when he's going to consider whether God can lie. He's going to say, impossible. God cannot lie. It's that level of impossibility. This is not unlikely. It's not not probable. It's not, well, really difficult. No, impossible. For it is impossible. And then he's going to move to a series of descriptors of a particular person. For those who have once, now that once becomes the head term for everything else that follows. And all it means is they have at one time experienced these things. And then you have this list, which in the NIV you can see begins with all of, it begins with the word who. But the once should, should actually be for the other who. Who have been enlightened, To be enlightened in the early church was a way of describing conversion, a way of describing the light of Christ coming upon you. It was often used in baptism rituals, Christian baptism. So they've once been enlightened. Secondly, they've tasted the heavenly gift. Now, this this idea of taste, it's a really, it's, it's a fantastic choice by the author because to taste means you have actually consumed it. You've actually experienced it. It's not walking by subway and thinking, hmm, they're baking fresh bread today. It's actually taking a bite. It's actually saying, I've taken a bite. There's an actual experience of it, but secondly, it's not the full experience. You see, because most of us don't go home on Christmas morning and say, I can't wait to taste Christmas lunch. No, we say, I can't wait to get home and eat Christmas lunch. We want the whole thing. Taste is a very good metaphor here. 
So they've tasted the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? Now we may be thinking the Holy Spirit here, but the Holy Spirit comes in the next verse. So I'm less inclined to think he's referring to the same thing twice. Their eyes have been opened, but secondly, they've tasted the heavenly gift. This phrase is used a lot in discussion of the manna in the wilderness, the bread that God provided, the bread of heaven. I think what it's saying is they've tasted Christ. They, they've sampled of what it means to know Jesus and know him. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. This means they have experienced and been involved with the ministry of the Spirit of God. You say, well, what's the ministry of the Spirit of God? It's lots of things. Lots of things. We know the Spirit of God imparts grace. It revives the believer. It, it regenerates them. It moves them from, from being dead in their trespasses and sins to being alive. We know the Spirit manifests himself through believers in the form of gifts. And so these gifts or graces are what we encounter in the church, God's Spirit showing himself. We also know that the Spirit's job throughout the whole world is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus told us that in the book of John, that he would pour out the Spirit on the whole earth. So the Spirit is is, is active, it's blowing like the wind, moving about, convicting people of sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, their depravity before God the glory of Jesus, and the reckoning that is to come. That's what the Spirit of God is doing. So they, they have shared in this. They've, they've experienced this. Next, now note the descriptions get longer. Who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. All of this is experiential language. This is somebody that you and I would call a convert. If this person walked into my church, I would call them brother. I would call them sister. It is impossible for that person and who has fallen away. That is the fifth descriptor. Notice they build in length. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted of of the good word of God and of the powers of the coming age and have fallen away. Rhetorically, it's meant to feel like coming to a, a crashing halt and falling away. What does it mean to fall, fall away? To fall away means to, to veer off the main road. It means to fall by the wayside or, or, or it means to, to turn around and to, to repudiate, to go a different direction. Now he's going to give the reason. So this is the person, sorry. He says it's impossible, but notice he's delayed. He's delayed what is actually impossible. He hasn't said what's impossible yet. He said something is impossible. He said who it's impossible for. And by now we're like, well, what's impossible? It's impossible to be brought back or literally renewed again to repentance. Why? Because that was repentance. Because Verse 4 is repentance. They'd already been walking. They had already turned. They had already tasted. They'd already seen and experienced. Past tense. Not conjecture. And then they've turned and rejected Jesus. You say, well, pastor, my theology tells me that's not possible. Okay? Exhibit A, Judas Iscariot.
Did the light of Christ shine on him? Absolutely. Did he do miracles? Yes. He was there feeding the 5,000, passing out the loaves and the fish. Did he, do you think he was in any way ministered to by the Holy Spirit? Believe so. What about the people Jesus refers to in Matthew 7 who come up to him and say, Lord, Lord, look at all this stuff we did for you. Look at all the hours. We did it in your name. Jesus says, who are you? Now, they can't be brought back to repentance. Why? Because they've repented of their repentance. This is different than doubt. We should say that. Jude reminds us that we need to be merciful with those who doubt. You see, there is a space for wrestling and there's a space for trying to understand God. There is also another space for, for wrestling with temptation and struggling in sin and, 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 and being lulled into sin again and again. This is another category entirely. This is the person who knows knows they're a sinner, looks at Jesus, begins receiving him, walking with him, and says, no, 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 not for me. I reject him. He's not who he said he is. And they turn. And those people, you say, well, what if they come back? I suppose it <laughs> depends on the state of their heart and how, whether that rejection was something that was final or something that was flippant. But most people you'll find who deconvert in that way when they fall away like that, they fall away hard. That's different from wrestling with sin. That's different from having doubts of trying to understand God, whose love, we're told, is even beyond our comprehension. I want to put it to you this way. The apostate here has heard Jesus' call for repentance. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross and follow me. And they have. They've done that. They've begun taking up their cross only to put their cross down again and pin Jesus on it. They've begun the way of discipleship and instead of dying to themselves daily out of devo devotion to Jesus, worshiping him as disciples, these fallen ones, they finally bow in worship to themselves and to their idols. They would rather crucify Jesus again than be crucified to the world like Paul said through him. Someone will be crucified. You will either... Allow yourselves to be crucified with Christ to the world around you or you will crucify the Son of God all over again. What do we mean by that? You'll come to the same conclusion the Jews did. You'll say, this guy's, this guy's bonkers. He's a nut job. I'm not going to worship that. I'm not going to worship some Nazarene that walked around 2,000 years ago who I haven't even seen. Why would I worship that one? And they hold this Jesus up to public shame and disgrace. You see, when you go there, when you resolve in your heart to take that stance, the writer says, you're not going to be renewed to repentance. You've already heard 
and you've already dismissed, which explains why he's so alarmed at their regression. Verse 7, the land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives a blessing. He gives them an image here and he says, look, you guys are like a field. The, the, the rain's dumping on the field. The word of God is, is being showered over you. If, if nothing's growing, if, or if, if all that's growing is thorns and thistles, well, it's not the rain's fault and it's not the sun's fault. There's something in the soil that's not right. And this should cause us to consider how long we've sat under the word of God and to ask ourselves, how is it growing in my life? What fruit am I seeing? Is, this, is, is it fruit of righteousness? Peter would write in, in one of his epistles, he says, now be sure to add to your faith. So, so there's things beyond faith. Add to your faith things like goodness and righteousness, self-control, perseverance, brotherly love, love itself. He gives them this image and he says, just look around at what's growing. If there's no fruit here, this is Paul who was saying, examine yourselves, test yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. If there's no fruit there, if God's fruit's not growing, then something needs to change or else that field's going to get torched. For the last time here, again, I think Johnson has said it well. Their rejection of the gift won by Christ's death is equivalent to participating in his state execution. And thereby, they mock him. It's not talking about people who haven't heard the gospel. This is not talking about people who've never been evangelized. This is talking about people who've sitting in churches, who've been baptized, who, who have heard the gospel and, and made a profession of faith. When they turn away, that's what they do. Finally, he offers them a word of comfort, and he says, God sees and rewards your loving devotion. This is really important for us to remember. Verse 9 of chapter 6, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things, things that have to do with salvation. He's been using that word better throughout this book to show Jesus is better than angels, Jesus is better than Moses, better than Joshua. Here he says, we're convinced of better things for you. That you're a part of those who are being saved. And he grounds that in two things. One is the justice of God and the second is their experience and what they've done, what they've shown already. He says in verse 10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help them. Literally, the love they show for his name. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what was promised. 
He's not talking to people who haven't entered the race. He's not talking to people who finished the race. He's talking to people who are in the race, like you and I are in the race right now. And he's saying, don't slow down. Don't stop growing. Allow the word of God to have its transforming effect upon your heart and upon your life, that you would produce the fruit of the Spirit, that God's goodness would be seen in and through you. Don't back it off. I was looking out this morning at this beautiful grass that's been cut, and, and uh, uh, thank you to all those who work so hard to, to keep the grounds here, just just beautifully maintained. And, you know, I, I love the ride-on mowers. I had one at Burke that I could borrow. I don't have one. I don't need one at home. I got this old little push mower. And, uh, you know, on that little push mower on the left-hand side, you, you, you got what's effectively the accelerator. And I was showing it to my kid the other day, saying, here, you know, I want you to learn how to cut the grass. Here's, here's what you do. They say, Dad, what, what does that mean? There's, there's two animals. There's two animals there. You know what the two animals are, right? There's a tortoise and a hare, right? There's a rabbit. And there's the turtle, right? And now maybe some of you maintain your grass really well, but I tell you what, there's only way I, one way I cut my grass. Full rabbit, right? Full rabbit. <laughs> get that thing spinning, right? Get, get, get the grass cut, get it maintained. The only time I'm down at the turtle is when I want to turn it off. The writer's saying, you're in a great race here. The stakes couldn't be higher. We got to go full rabbit. Full rabbit after Jesus. And he says, if you hit the tortoise, you might not get that thing started again. Don't think you're going to regress spiritually and make it to the finish. Let this be a wake-up call to you if it hasn't already. You say, this seems really hard. There's so many competing distractions. I agree with you. There's a lot of things that can distract you. This text gives you a focal point. In Hebrews, there's always the focal point of Jesus, but there's a really practical focal point here in verse 12. Imitate. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. I love to play the imitation game with kids. And there's this beautiful moment when you're imitating a child and you're trying to get their attention. And, and you know what happens? The world stops. Because if you're imitating somebody, if you're imitating that child, you are so glued to everything that they're doing, you can't bother thinking about this. You can't bother thinking about that because the moment they raise their right arm, you raise your right arm. The moment they shake their left leg, you shake your left leg. That's what it means to imitate. You gotta be so focused. And I wanna encourage you, brothers and sisters, do you have somebody in our congregation in this fellowship that you can imitate? Someone who has a patient faith. Oftentimes we're tempted to go follow the loudest faith. 
Volume is not equal to maturity. Find someone with a patient faith. In the family service, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. We had a, we had a gentleman, we asked the kids, we said, who's somebody, who's somebody you, can, you can imitate? And of course, the kids have great answers. And I say, adults, who's someone you can imitate? Nobody says anything. It's crickets. And I was feeling really sad. And finally, a guy put his hand up. And he said, you know, I want to imitate my wife. She has such a patient faith. She's been through so much. And I watch what she does. I tell you what, that man's going to grow. That man is growing. We've got to find somebody that we can imitate. Find someone who's not thrown off course by the ups and downs in life, but continues to follow after Jesus. Those people will inherit what he has promised. There's wonderful stories in the scriptures of all these people. All right. Summary. Three expectations for us to show that our faith is genuine. If our faith is genuine, we will mature. We will persevere and we will serve. We will continue to love God and love each other. <clears throat> through service. I'm not trying to turn this into a volunteerism message. That's not what this is about, all right? I'm saying you will become devoted to your brothers and sisters who are running the race with you. Not because they're fantastic people, but because God loves them too. And you know the love God has for you and you see the love he has for them and you say, well, if he loves them like he loves me, then I should love them too. But I want to finish with an encouragement to you all. I see this happening in our church. I can't speak for you specifically. I, I don't know. One of the hard things about the pandemic is I, I don't really know where your heart's at with the Lord right now. I feel like I'm just preaching to people whose faces look familiar, but who I haven't been able to walk with for some time. But I can tell you a few stories. I know someone in this room today, someone in this room today, who sent me a message and said, hey, I'm pretty new to the faith, but I was talking to this person and they said, what is the gospel? And this person sent me a message and said, this is, this is what I wrote to them. And I, and I read what the person wrote. I said, I couldn't have said it better myself. And this person hasn't been a Christian all that long. You know the gospel, WDBC. There's another person in this room who I know left their house at the drop of a hat to go and help a brother and sister in need yesterday night. Didn't matter that Ash Barty was playing. Didn't matter that men's doubles was on after that. At the drop of a hat, walked out their front door, drove an hour, to help a brother and sister in need. Brothers and sisters, these are the people you're worshiping with. And I'm sure you all have your own stories too. Take heart. God sees this. He knows it.